ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. G'day, I'm David Lipson coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Welcome to This Week. Hey, breaking news, we've got confirmation from the Prime Minister Anthony Albanese that US President Joe Biden is officially not coming to Australia next week. Is political dysfunction in America making it an unreliable partner in the Indo-Pacific? That's the question many were forced to ponder this week after President Joe Biden pulled the plug on his planned visit to Sydney. I'm postponing the Australia portion of the trip and my stop in Papua New Guinea uh, in order to be back for the final negotiations with congressional leaders. There was an overwhelming consensus, I think, in today's meeting, the congressional leaders, that defaulting on the debt is simply not an option. President Biden was meant to gather with leaders of India, Japan and Australia in Sydney for what's known as the Quad, a key strategic summit in the region. It'll now hold a slimmed down version of the meeting on the sidelines of the G7 in Japan, but then the US president will rush home to deal with a standoff over the debt ceiling, prompting some, like former Foreign Minister Bob Carr, to question America's commitment to the region. It is a reminder about the unpredictability of American behaviour, about America not being as committed to this alliance and this relationship as um, as we fondly imagine it would be. And it'd be unrealistic of of us not to absorb the lesson of the decision the president has made. So is this a mere blip in the long game of strategic competition against China or something more serious for the regional alliances like the Quad? Well, the Quad first took shape in the aftermath of the massive Boxing Day tsunami in the Indian Ocean in 2004 when the US, Australian, Japanese and Indian navies for the first time ever formed a joint task force to save tens of thousands of people from Sri Lanka to Bandache and uh, Phuket, Thailand, across the whole Indian Ocean uh, and Southeast Asian region. Michael Green is CEO of the United States Studies Centre at the University of Sydney. And it was a quick decision. I was in the White House at the time, about 12 hours, and people realised this is a powerful grouping. The US, Japan, Australia have a deeper relationship, but India was not part of this. And we're talking about four of the most uh, powerful maritime democracies in the region, and what more could we do together? So there was a lot of uh, movement towards formalizing this quadrilateral uh, dialogue, but it it sort of petered out. Um, Relations with China were better uh, in 2006, 7, 8. Governments thought maybe it's too much, but it came back. And it came back primarily, in my view, because under Xi Jinping, China began uh, coercing and pushing hard against the whole region. And India in particular came back to the Quad because of um, military clashes in the Himalayan mountains, uh, Chinese incursions in the Indian Ocean. So it has driven back to this summit we now have in part by geopolitics and uncertainty about China. But what the leaders have tried to do, and I think done well, is say, we're not about containing China. What we're really about is helping Asia be more resilient. So um, donating um, hundreds of millions of vaccines for COVID, uh, helping with health security, otherwise with maritime uh, security, capacity building in the region, doing public goods is what the theme is. And that will be the theme when the leaders have a mini quad, I think, on the margins of the G7 summit in Japan. 
So what is the cancellation, though, of the actual quad meeting in Sydney mean in terms of the the substance of of the meeting? Yes, they will meet in in Japan, uh, but also the optics, the symbolism of of coming together in Sydney. Well, of course, it'll be hugely disappointing um, for all those people who worked on it. Um, It symbolically will cause a little bit of damage. Um, There's a lot of criticism about Biden and America in parts of the media. But but at the end of the day, I don't think the cancellation is going to have much impact on the geopolitics at all. The agenda for the Quad is going to move forward. They are going to agree to do everything they were set to agree to do anyway. They will meet again. Um, I think the momentum behind the Quad continues. Um, they do lose a little something by having a truncated session because perhaps the most important part of the Quad, in the past at least, has been for the four leaders to sit down and in private talk about how they, they see the world. And I suspect that in private, even Prime Minister Albanese and Prime Minister Modi, who are more reticent publicly, are going to be quite candid about their concerns about China. They lose a bit of that by by, by not having a full-on quadrilateral summit in Sydney. But look, in 2015, President Obama canceled his big trip to Asia because he was dealing with a debt crisis with the Republican Congress. Nobody remembers that. In 1995, Bill Clinton canceled his big Asia trip because he was dealing with the debt crisis with the Republican Congress. Nobody remembers that. They'll remember if Biden can't resolve this and there's an economic disaster, they'll remember that. So he's really got no choice but to do what he has to do to try to get to a compromise on this debt negotiation with the US Congress, which is a perennial. This is the third time it's happened. You would imagine, though, that this will be celebrated in Beijing, and and already it has led to questions about the reliability of the United States and its commitment to the Quad and the region. What's your view on all that? Well, yeah, um, in in, in 1995, uh, with the Clinton cancellation, 2015 with Obama, uh, that happened. Nobody remembers. Um, The fact is that the Chinese have had a string of real setbacks if they're trying to compete with the U.S. You know, Wang Yi, um, China's state counselor for foreign affairs, um, made a highly publicized visit to the Pacific Islands um, to try to get a security agreement and was rebuffed. That was followed by a string of um, big diplomatic advances for President Biden. He hosted the Korean and Philippine uh, presidents in Washington recently. Both Korea and the Philippines were, you know, thought to be a little more wobbly, a little less ready to uh, take on China than, say, Australia or Japan. Uh, But in both those summits with Marcos of the Philippines and Yun of Korea, there were major, major agreements on security cooperation, diplomatic cooperation. So um, Biden's actually had a pretty remarkable run. But diplomacy is a bit like footy. It can suddenly change. So this round, the Chinese will make some uh, score some points. They'll be short term. I think the actual substance of the quad will absolutely continue because all four governments need it uh, because they see it as a really important vehicle to reinforce Asia, to demonstrate that they are committed to the security and, and, and development of these countries, but also as a reminder that these are four big, powerful maritime democracies that are coming together, not by coincidence, in the wake of Chinese coercion against them. Yeah, you've mentioned the the debt ceiling and and the reason that Joe Biden has to stay in the United States. It comes up, it seems, every few years or even more often sometimes. Can you just explain for us Australians what it is and and why it it just keeps causing such big problems domestically for the US? Well, the Constitution uh, of the United States gives the power under Article 1 to the Congress to um, issue debt 
to uh, to control the purse strings to pay for things. Um, that's very different from, from Australia, where you have a parliamentary unitary system where the where the prime minister's party also has a majority in the in the legislature in the parliament. And it usually doesn't matter when the president's party is in control in Congress, but every once in a while, a Democratic president will win an election. And then Republicans will sweep in and win the House of Representatives back and say to the Democratic president, hold on, we don't agree with all your spending priorities. And then the Democratic president says, but I was elected and this is my mandate. Then they have a stare off and markets get a bit nervous. But in the end, they find a compromise. Um, This one's complicated because the Republican Party has more extremists than before, but there are a couple pathways to getting out of it. And polls show that if they don't, both parties will be blamed, but the Republicans will pay a big price in the next election. Uh, So I think there's incentive to as there always is, to avoid the sort of um, worst-case scenario. And just to, to dwell on that worst-case scenario, if, if you don't mind, what are the implications if this deadlock isn't resolved? Because as you say, there are several, more than a few extremist members of Congress these days. I mean, the honest answer is that nobody knows for sure. It's a little, a little bit like Y2K, if anybody remembers that, in the year 2000, when everyone thought all the computers would crash. Well, that was a fizzer, though. <laughs> nothing happened. Yeah. Um, so if, if the U.S. defaults on its loans, if it can't pay back its debtors, that could cause massive economic disruption, and not just for America, but for Australia, for China, for the whole world, uh, and um, would be very bad. Um, but nobody knows quite sure whether or not the U.S. would default. Um, For example, the U.S. Treasury Department says June 1 is when we have to have this solved. But others are pointing out it really depends on the tax revenue from the month before. And maybe it's June 15th. Maybe it's July or August. Nobody knows for sure. But the markets the last two times began signaling that they were really nervous. And that's starting to happen this time. And in, in effect, saying to the politicians, we're warning you, we don't want you to mess around with this anymore. Um, I, I think that's likely to happen again. Uh, the political constellation's a bit different. Some people are nervous about that. But the incentives to get to yes are pretty strong for the House Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, and for President Biden. Mm, yeah, you've spent a lot of time in and around Washington. Uh, how do you think it'll it'll play out? Uh, I think it'll go down to the wire. Markets will, send, will start to move and be nervous. The key is in the Senate. The Senate is controlled by Democrats, but the Republicans will have to in the in the Senate, which doesn't control the budget the way the House does, but the Senate will have to weigh in. And everyone's waiting to see when the Senate Republican leader, um, Mr. McConnell, who's uh, friendly with Biden, privately, not publicly, like many politicians, they fight publicly, but he they like each other privately. When does he step in and start working on the compromise? And I think he will. And the Biden administration is going to get to spend less money than it wanted, probably. And the Republicans are going to have to tell the extremists in the Freedom Caucus, we're not going to melt down the U.S. economy to punish Joe Biden. That's Michael Green, the CEO of the U.S. Studies Centre in Sydney. Senate inquiries are designed to hold governments and public officials to account, but they often play out more like a fishing expedition sprinkled with a good dose of political point scoring. In other words, they don't produce a lot of bombshells. But a few questions from Labor Senator Deborah O'Neill earlier this year blew the lid off a scandal 
involving one of the government's biggest private consultancy firms, PwC. My question really goes to the implications for PwC as an organisation uh, that this confidential material was sufficiently shared to create a product designed to enable profit making by PwC. So what's the consequence for PwC as an entity? The question had been bubbling along for months. Did PwC breach government confidentiality agreements to help multinational companies avoid paying tax? Well, this week we got a clear answer and the sheer scale and audacity of the breach is quite astounding. Ed Tadros is a journalist at the Australian Financial Review and one of the journalists who broke the story. So questions on notice, it's when you get asked a question and you actually don't know the answer straight away or you can't produce the answer and you go, I'll take that on notice. And as you as you say, it happens all the time. There's a very hard to navigate database in the Parliament House you can go to on the website and there's thousands, tens of thousands probably of these questions on notice. And most of the time you get back an answer that isn't really that helpful or only moves things forward a little bit. Um, this particular question I noticed by Labor Senator Deborah O'Neill was very different. Why was it so different? What she did was um, the the obscure uh, body at the heart of this, the Tax Practitioners Board, had appeared before Senate estimates um, earlier in the year and had answered some questions. And she had um, quietly at the end of it put a question on notice, so you don't actually have to announce it, asking for the report that they'd done into um, PwC over these tax leaks and um, a copy of the report, a copy of the emails related to the report. And it sort of sat there for months without many people being aware of it. And then it was the result of that that produced the email cache that we reported about. So what was uncovered as a result of that question on notice? What it produced was 144 pages of internal PwC emails. And what they did was detail, within reason, there's heaps of stuff missing, but it just detailed what happened when one of their partners was on a secret treasury group to design a new tax aimed at multinationals. And it detailed what happened within PwC once this person had joined that group. And it showed that essentially dozens of PwC partners from around the world were involved in this two, three-year plan to, they worked out what was happening with the tax before it was publicly announced. They worked out a list of clients they wanted to target to advise on how to sidestep a tax that that PwC partner was simultaneously helping the government develop. Wow. So let's go back to the start. Where did this tax, uh, this concept for, for a new tax targeting multinationals come from? We have to go back to about uh, Joe Hockey is treasurer and um, he comes out and says, we don't think that multinationals, and it's really targeted the tech giants, are paying their fair share of um, Australian tax. So they're using all sorts of complicated accounting techniques to um, not report revenue in Australia. And at the end of the day, you've got an organisation that's doing a lot of business in Australia, paying a much smaller rate of tax than you would a Coles or a Woolies. So this is part of the plan. And in, before the announcement, there's a whole bunch of work that Treasury does to develop how the law would look, which is where this PwC partner was helping out on a, um, on a confidential committee to help design the tax. And the idea there is you get experts in to help you design a tax that um, is workable 
um, that uh, people will comply with, but also achieves the government's goals, which in this case was to get multinationals, tech giants operating in Australia to pay more tax, essentially. Right. So PwC was one of the companies that advised the government on these new laws to stop tax avoidance. But there was a loophole, a, a workaround, and, and PwC, what, shopped that workaround to, to the companies that were actually being targeted. Is that right? Essentially, yes. They, they, there wasn't a loophole. They just worked out, because they were there from the beginning, they had a brains trust work out effectively how these US giants could restructure so that the tax didn't apply to them. So that, that, that was their approach. Um, it, it, that's you know, a huge we, we, breach of faith, isn't it? Oh, completely, yeah. I mean, if you take a step back, this is essentially a firm um, betraying the trust of its largest client, which is the federal government, to help its other commercial clients avoid tax and make money in the process. It's outrageous. So do we know what companies PwC was trying to shop this information around to? Yeah, the the emails are heavily redacted. So the, there's only one name of the partner who was sort of pinged in the first place about it. Um, we know that they pitched to at least 23 redacted names. We can kind of guess who they are. You know, it's big US multinationals, which is who the tax was aimed at. We've re- we reported this week that three of the companies that were pitched to were Apple, Microsoft, and Google. But we're not sure if they actually took up the advice. We know that PwC pitched to them. Um, with, with this technique to sidestep the law that Mr Hockey was, um, you know, had unveiled with great fanfare. So PwC has now announced that the former chief executive, Tom Seymour, will retire early. The company's also holding an internal review into this issue. But what happens next? Okay, so far, Senator O'Neill's not very impressed by the review. She says it's going to take too long. Um, they're not going. They haven't committed to revealing what it's what's said in the report, and they haven't really said what's going to happen to these partners who were directly involved. So that's sort of that. That's a holding pattern there, and I think that's that's a difficult situation for the firm. The government has got a bit of a dilemma. There's a push by um, politicians, by Senator O'Neill, um, the Greens. Uh, to ban PwC from government work. They entered into roughly half a billion dollars worth of contracts with the federal government over the past two years. It's not clear where where that, that sort of push is. Uh, and then um, you've sort of got Treasury, uh, the Treasurer who said he's ropeable about it. There's talk we hear of um, some sort of financial penalty. It's not quite clear what that would look like. Um, in the emails, uh, they there's an email where they talk about providing advice about this tax to 14 clients, brand-defining clients, they call them, and making $2.5 million in the first stage of their, what they call the Project North America. So, you know, it's likely they would have made a lot more, but um, some financial penalty. And um, and what's also happening within the bureaucracy is I think you'll start to see people are reluctant to extend PwC in Canberra or to give them new contracts, just given what, what's been unveiled so far. What about globally, the reputational damage on, on PwC? Uh, could this have a sort of much bigger world impact on the company? It's not clear yet. Um, what is obvious from the emails is this was a global endeavour. There's emails, um, they redacted the names, but you'd see the second part of the email. And so there were emails of people from the UK, from Ireland, from the US, and then 
in the uh, email sort of where they announce they got 14 clients, they talk about having help from partners in Singapore and the Netherlands. So this was a global endeavor. Uh, what One thing is quite clear is that it's going to be really hard for the firm to do what it would normally do, which is ask a few partners to quietly retire. They're probably going to have to announce that they're doing that. Um, I can't see how they don't do that and have any credibility. So it's a real dilemma for the firm. And, you know, this is a firm that in 2021 rebranded around the concept of trust. Mm. Um, so it's, it's sort of a bit darkly ironic. Yeah, it sure is. The The Labor government promised to revitalise the public service when it came to power last year. Do you think this whole episode provides what cover for the Albanese government to, to move away from private consultant heavy governance and hire more civil servants? I think so. I, I think what it really highlights, and it, it's hard to get um, it's hard to get the public interested in consultants working in government, it just highlights the problems it can cause. Because in this case, even though PwC wasn't being paid to help develop this tax, they were both developing a tax and helping clients sidestep the tax. And you just naturally get that. You get these conflicts when you have consultants in there because they're experts in it. And if they're develop, helping you develop something, they're also advising their clients. There's no suggestion they're doing something illegal there or even improper, but it's it does put them in an awkward situation. So... It, it does sort of make the argument for them that you should have a, you know, a more robust public service that can do a lot of these things that have slowly been outsourced and given to consultants over time. Ed Tadros there, a journalist with the Australian Financial Review. In 1939, Albert Einstein wrote a history-changing letter to US President Franklin D. Roosevelt warning that uranium could be used to construct extremely powerful bombs. His famous equation, E equals MC squared, had previously posited how immense energy could be released by splitting the atom. Well, this week there was a similarly stark warning, albeit about a very different threat, from one of the designers of the artificial intelligence app, ChatGPT. My worst fears are that we cause significant we, the field, the technology, the industry, cause significant harm to the world. I think if this technology goes wrong, it can go quite wrong. Uh, and we want to be vocal about that. We want to work with the government to prevent that from happening. Sam Altman, the chief executive of OpenAI, the company behind ChatGPT, told a US Senate committee that the sector needs more regulation. So what's he worried about? And is it too late to apply the brakes in a technology that's already in the hands of a billion people worldwide? I do think that, you know, we, we apply safety standards to pretty much every other technology or pharmaceutical or food prep that comes out into society. And for a couple of different reasons, the technology companies have been able to sidestep these safety standards. So really it's just bringing them into line with everything else that we do. Rebecca Johnson is an AI ethics expert with the University of Sydney. You know, I, I think with any new technology, jobs are going to change. And we've been seeing that since the invention of the steam engine. And and that's that's what happens. So we need to better prepare the people and prepare the new incoming generation to be able to work with whatever new technology that humans are inventing at that time. To me, what is actually the, the bigger issue is the perpetuation of different ideologies. So at the moment, these models are mostly trained on English-speaking text. They're often primarily from, from the US and definitely from the West. And so 
the ideas and opinions and political persuasions and the value sets that are embedded into those texts, or so into the internet and things like Reddit and Twitter and all that, those ideas get embedded into the training data and then they get weighted into the models themselves. So you you are having a perpetuation of whatever biases are existing in the training data gets put out there. Then the next problem from that is also how these technologies can be used to, you know, fake deep fakes, so mm-hmm. fake people's voices and their and their images and whatnot. And I think it's always been problematic for the general public to know the difference between, you know, truth and fiction and, and what's fake and what's real. And that's just going to become actually more difficult because these technologies are so easily accessible to so many people now. If you wanted to, if you, you know, if a bad actor wanted to put out some propaganda campaign, these technologies are really great at, you know, very quickly developing texts that can sound quite persuasive. What about regulation? Because these comments <laughs> were made at a US Senate committee hearing looking at how to regulate the sector. Is it possible? Yes, I, I do think it is. So, you know, some people are saying that, you know, well, we've missed the boat in design and these these products are being built in private companies in other countries. So it makes it difficult for Australia to regulate that particular part. But we certainly can regulate downstream, you know. So there's, for instance, Google, when they just released Bard the other day, they also said that they're watermarking all of their generated um, outputs, images and text. Can you just explain the the concept of of watermarking? Yeah, so there'll be... um, some imprinted code into the into the image or into the text that can't be removed and hopefully can't be copied to show that this particular piece of text or image has actually come from a, a large language model and it will usually be watermarked with whatever company it's come from. So it's a bit like a sort of stamp of approval or, or maybe even like a blue tick that Twitter used to have or, or Facebook or the like? Yeah, but it's more like, uh, I mean, watermarking on, on paper, right, to say that this, it's not even so much to say that this is a blue tick so this is a great thing or, or anything. It's just to say this is generated content. So if generated, if you're looking at a picture and it doesn't have a, you know, a watermark, then that's a clue that you know, okay maybe it, it hasn't you know it hasn't come from one of these more legitimate companies. So it's more an extra piece of information. The tech sector is is just moving so fast. I mean, could authorities keep up with the the rapid pace of these developments? Yeah, well, I hope they can. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, a it's a really important question. Certainly, I think we can look to the EU. They seem to move a lot faster than the US and they've come out with some really great um, regulatory guidelines around AI over there and have been doing for different technologies for quite a few years now. So I I think that they're um, good people to watch. I think that the US is trying to to get up to speed. I think certainly uh, the senators at this latest hearing were a lot more well prepared than the senators at that Zuckerberg meeting a few years ago when they just really didn't seem to have any idea of what Facebook was or, or how it worked. So I think that they are trying and I, I think it's a challenge, but the alternative to, to sit back and to say, oh, well, off you go, I mean, that's not going to lead us down a very good path. The question's been asked this week about whether this technology is akin to the atomic bomb. Since 1945, though, a, a kind of global decision's held that we won't use an atomic bomb. It's held until now, at least. So is it possible that a decision is made 
not to use the more problematic bits of AI? So I think the um, analogy to the atomic bomb is a little bit misleading. The atomic bomb was created as a weapon of mass destruction. That was the, the purpose behind the creation of that piece of technology. Large language models were not at all created to be weapons. You know, they're created to to help people with, and they do help people with a, a wide range of different things. There's a huge amount of good uses that we could use these for. I think it would be better to compare it to something like the invention of the, you know, the smartphone or the internet, you know, and people have also compared it to the printing press. That's a high standard. Not sure if we put it quite up there. We, only time will tell to see how big it is, but I don't see it as a creation for destruction. I see it as a creation of a new piece of technology that can be used, you know, for great things and it can be used for mediocre, boring things and can be used for bad things. So it's it's not a case of restricting. It's it's a case of regulating, making it as, as sort of user-friendly as as helpful as possible. I think restricting it is unlikely. I mean, it's in the wild, you know, and I know the education sector is struggling with this a lot and they're trying to restrict people from using it. And I think that's going to be the same as trying to restrict people from using calculators. You know, unless you're in a physical exam room setting, then it's really, it's impossible to police something like that. And because it is going to be something as important as calculators going forward, you know, rather than just say, oh, don't use this new technology, don't use calculators, then show people how how to use calculators. And I think we all accept that calculators are a very helpful tool nowadays. And that gets me to another point that I think a lot of this discussion of regulation is coming from inside technology companies or, you know, in that particular circle. Eric Schmidt, the previous CEO of Google, come out the other day and say, oh, the, you know, these safety standards have to come from when, with inside the machine learning community because we're the only people that understand it. And that's 100% rubbish, you know. So it's like saying, oh, do you know how to build your car engine? No, you don't. So then you shouldn't be involved in the discussion of road safety. So if we're going to be using this technology in, in different settings, like maybe schools or um, different care centres, then we need to involve the people from those sectors in the conversation of, okay, what is the best way to regulate it for your particular use? That's Rebecca Johnson, an AI ethics expert with the University of Sydney. And that's the episode for this week. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe. This week, it's produced by Madeline Jenner, Rachel Hayter, Marcus Hobbs, and me, David Lipson. Catch you next time.